John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. There's this old saying that goes something like this, good things come to those that wait. I'm not sure the context of that saying came about, why it came about. But this little vignette from the resurrection account of Jesus is a great application of it. Mary Magdalene, she's named as being at the crucifixion and now at the tomb of Jesus in all four of the Gospels. And she's named in them simply because it's a fact that she was an eyewitness of these events. The reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. Without them, we have no hope. They are the linchpin that holds it all together. They are the theme of the Bible. They are, as Paul said, of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to Paul in verses 17 through and first, uh, verses 17 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. He said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep of Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Saints, the resurrection of, of Jesus is reality. It's truth. It is why we have hope. But before we move into our text from today, I have a question for you. I want to challenge you in something. I want, because this was a challenge for me, a question that I had to have to ask myself this week. Where is your hope? You may be saying, well, my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. At least I hope you say that. But where is your hope? What are you asking, David? I'm not sure what you're trying to get at. Because we are the elect of God, because our hearts have been regenerated to see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves, because his spirit is living within us and testifies to us that Jesus is Lord, and because we have submitted and obeyed, have confessed, repented, have been baptized, because of these things we have hope. But did you hear the importance placed on the hope that we're supposed to have? Where is your hope? Where do you place all the emphasis of your life? Where are, where are your dreams, all of your aspirations, your goals? What are they centered on? This life only? Or is the eternal where your hope is found? Do you have those hopes? Make petitions to God on behalf of the Son because of those hopes. Or, all of, or, or are all of your petitions for this life only? Lord, you know how much I desire to be married. Lord, please allow me to have that job, that car, that house, that money. Lord, please heal my body of this disease, of this illness. 
You pray for these things in hope, and you should. But where is your hope? Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. But Paul knew that if our hope is only in this life only, even if we hope in this life only in Christ, if we do that, we are to be most pitied. What's that? Where where are you going with this, David? Saints, do you hope for heaven? Do you see that death is not an end? It's the transportation vehicle that's used to usher us into our eternal hope. Here we have hopes and dreams. And most of those hopes and dreams, they come and they go. They're like seasons of the year. Think about this. There are some hopes that you've had. And they're just gone now. You don't hope for them anymore. There are some hopes that you have. That, la- that will last you a lifetime, such as hoping in a mate. But even in that hope, even if that hope lasts a lifetime, at best it's 80 years. But in Christ, you have eternal hope. How much of our focus, how many of our prayers are focused on that hope? If we hope in this life only, then Christ is nothing more than a genie in a bottle to us. We see him only for what we can get out of him and not what we get in him. We have to ask ourselves, what's our purpose in life? To gain some experiences? To get some stuff? To have some fun? To live this life to the fullest? Or do you pray for things that really matter? Are you living in the eternal hope? Praying for things that will be given to you, that will last a lifetime. Not an 80 years lifetime, but an eternal lifetime. Are you praying and asking God, reveal yourself more to me? Are you, like Moses, petitioning God, show me your glory? Do you pray for wisdom? Do you pray and ask God, give me the ability to memorize your scripture more easily? Do you pray and ask God, give me the mind of Christ in a more full and complete way? Do you pray for patience? Saints, what matters most to you now? You're going to know what that is. You can tell what you hope for by what you pray for. Do you base all your decisions on money and advancement? Or are your decisions based on eternal matters, such as your, your spiritual well-being, the one for your, of your soul, or the spiritual well-being of your marriage, or the spiritual well-being of your children. Are these the things that you base your decisions on? Because these are the things he will give you now. And these are the things that matter now and for all eternity. These are the things that you will take with you for all eternity. 
That stuff, those experiences, they may be good, but they're not going with you. There's never a U-Haul that follows a hearse, ever. The only thing that you're going to take with you to glory are those things that have eternal value. Saints, this was a wake-up call for me. Maybe for you as well. We need to be given an eternal mindset in this life. We need to get our eyes off the ground and start looking up. We need to do it because our salvation draws near. Heaven is only a heartbeat away. Are you, am I, are we living in that hope? Because this account is all centered on the reality of that hope. On the truth that we can and should have hope in this life and the next. Because the tomb was empty. Jesus has risen. And the best is yet to come for us. And this Mary and the others, they had come early in the morning to mourn and anoint that body of Jesus. Once again, as told to us in verse 1 of chapter 20, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And this Mary does something remarkable when, she's the, when she sees that stone has been rolled away. She runs and she tells these men who are hiding behind locked doors, have been sleeping in and not with them at the tomb. She goes and tells them. Why would she do that? Well, the answer is given to us in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 through 8. There we read, Now after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like, like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And now we understand why she ran, why they ran to tell the disciples that the tomb was empty. But the message that they passed along to the disciples isn't the one that they were given. She told Peter and John in chapter, in chapter 20, verse 2, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And the reason that she gave them that message, that they didn't believe, is told to us in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The disciples came back with them. They saw the empty tomb. And let's say for argument's sake that the message that the women gave them, passed along to them, contained at least part, if not all, of what they were told. None of them were convinced. They might have been hopeful, 
After all, they saw the stone rolled away. They saw the tomb left unguarded. They saw the burial clothes lying neatly folded and the face covering lying next to it. They saw these things. They wondered at them. But then the disciples, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders, looked at each other and said, weird. And then they went home. Verse 10. But verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Mary hung out. She waited. The logical thing for her to do was to head back home, to go back and, and get some breakfast with the boys, perhaps go back and discuss the events of the morning with them, to try and discern their meaning. But she wasn't interested in being the center of attention because she was the one that had brought that message or had seen those angels. She stayed. And because she did not yet understand, she mourned as she stayed. Not just the death of her beloved Jesus, but now that they, whoever they were, had taken him from her once again. The tomb was empty. He was gone. She had hoped in him in life when he was with her in this life. She had loved the person of Jesus and had clung onto that love, onto that hope. And in that grief, she once again looks into that empty tomb for a dead man that she already knew wasn't there. She stooped to look into the tomb. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This Mary was having quite the morning. She's now seen something twice, something that most people never see, an angel. And she's been spoken to by an angel, given a message by an angel. And now she has stooped to look into the tomb that the boys had just been in. Remember, the disciples just left there. They had verified that it had been empty, save the grave clothes of Jesus. She stoops to look into it once again. And she had to be startled to see that the tomb was no longer empty. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew, when they give this account, they only mention one angel. And we have to clarify this. Is this just one of those inconsistencies those errors that are contained in the Bible, the one that the Christianity is built on. Saints, if there's one angel, it doesn't preclude that there aren't two. And neither one of those Gospels say that there was only one angel. They just focus in on one angel, the angel that speaks. Mary saw two angels dressed in white. And what they were wearing isn't the thing that we should be focused on, but what they were doing. They were sitting on an altar that held the body of the risen king, one at the head and one at the feet. Augustine held that their placement suggested that the gospel of Jesus was to be preached from the head to the foot, from the beginning to the end. Aquinas thought that they signified the two natures of Christ, or the two covenants, or the two testaments. But we need to ask ourselves, what were they doing? And where were they sitting? And what has this portion of scripture caused us to do before? Has it not been given to us to cause our minds to compare things? 
And are we not really supposed to be carrying, comparing things here, earthly things, but we're supposed to be comparing spiritual things? This gospel was written to compare the original creation week with the recreation that Jesus brought about. That the seven signs of Christ mean and the significance of that last sign. And now we find two angels sitting on an altar that held God, one at the head, one at the other at the foot. Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, or angels, of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them, one on, uh, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Of one piece with, mer with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. As those Exodus verses tell us, this covering was called the mercy seat, or a better rendering of that Hebrew there is the place of propitiation. But that stone bench that Jesus laid on was not the mercy seat or the place of propitiation that we are supposed to compare or equate the mercy seat in Exodus to. Jesus is. In fact, we are meant in this gospel to see all the things of the old covenant worship are all pointing to shadows of Jesus. Think about this. In the temple, the ark was in the innermost chamber and separated by a veil, as told to us in Exodus 40, verse 3, and Exodus 40, 21. Jesus was placed in the innermost chamber of a cave, was covered by a veil and separated by a rock. The anointing of the ark, they included spices, as told to us in Exodus 30, 26. The body of Jesus was anointed with oil in preparation to become the atonement or propitiation for our sins, John 12, 1 through 8. And then his body was anointed with 75 pounds of spices. And then the women were, women were coming once again to anoint his body with spices when they, stoned, when they found that stone was rolled away. The ark was kept in the Holy of Holies, a place where you were forbidden to enter, except the high priest and only once a year. And the beloved disciple and the women all were hesitant to enter into this Holy of Holies. And finally, the glory of God filled the tabernacle and appeared to Moses between the cherubim on the ark, as told to us in Exodus 25. This then sheds light on verses such as John 12, 16. They tell us his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And even John 2, 19 through 22, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We have come to John chapter 20. 
maybe a, a little bit let down after the crucifixion of Christ. And we've come to this section of Scripture, and we kind of just come to it waiting to get to the good part. When Jesus reveals himself in his resurrected body to Mary and his disciples. But we are intended to see that this section of Scripture, these non-events that we're reading about, are given us to reveal the reality of who it was that was missing from that tomb. The events that are told to us back in chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, when Jesus was walking in the temple at the Feast of Dedication, which is a Jewish holiday celebrating the building and rebuilding of the temple, when he was confronted and asked, how long will you keep us in suspense? That conversation culminates with him telling them that he and the Father are one. And those events are told to us to compare and contrast Jesus with all the feasts and celebrations and showing that he is the fulfilling of them, that he and the Father are one. And Jesus is then compared with and is shown to be the true Passover lamb in verses such as John 19, 31 through 37. And even John 1, 20, John 1, 29, which tells us, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He is shown to be the true manna that came down from heaven in John 6, 32 through 35. And here he is declared to be the full saving power, the full presence of the living and true God. He is the fulfilling of the temple, of the sacrifices that were required, of even the tools and the furniture that were mandated within it, and the feasts that were given by God. And he is the Sabbath, and he is one with the Father, which is why all the things that we do in Christianity must be centered on, focused on, and flow through and even for Jesus. We pray in his name. We read and we pray and we sing and we preach his word. We take his communion. And all of this was the intended meaning behind telling us that there were two angels sitting on that bench. And then they speak. Or more precisely, only one of them speaks. Verse 13. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. The question that they ask her, that that angel asked her, is sublime. For us, that question seems to be like a no-brainer. Why are you weeping? She's weeping because the body of Christ is gone, and she thinks something bad has occurred to it. But the angels had to be asking this question for a completely different reason than we think. They were sitting there on that altar at the head of the foot as God has commanded Moses to have the angels placed. And they were sitting there in wonder at the grace, at the majesty and the power of God, the one that they served. And they were sitting there glorying in God in the majesty of who he was. And they were doing that in this empty tomb. And they wondered at the fact that Mary was standing there weeping in sadness. As if they were, it's as if they were pointing to the empty tomb where they had been sitting and then looking at her in wonder and asking her, Woman, why are you weeping? And her answer back to them is almost exactly the same thing that she said to the disciples earlier. 
They've taken the Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. She had forgotten that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 11. And then verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. Again, this charge I received from my father. He was never taken. He was never a victim. And death was not an end. Because he is the door, John 10, 7. And this truth should have profound effects on how we view death. Where and what our hope is. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, or that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we, be, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. Since the reality is that we will face death here. That's a constant reminder of our sin and our need for a Savior. And God could have changed this. You realize that? God could have changed that. He could have sanctified us the moment that we were saved. And he could have glorified us in that moment. But he left us here to hope. To hope in what? To hope in what we know. We know that there is a coming judgment. And we know that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that the wages of sin is death and the wrath of God. We know these things and we are to have hope. Because we know that Jesus lived, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and rose again on the third day. We know that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, always, always making intercession for us. We know that we are in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That we have been raised to life in the heavenly places but we still die here. But when we die, when a saint dies, they enter into glory. They step into the fullness of the reward of the Lamb of God who took away their sins. They no longer feel the pain of a body that is moaning under the results of the fall. And for the first time, they awake and they love with a heart that is no longer evil. For the first time ever, they are no longer sin. And they know, they know that they are not under condemnation because their hope is standing right there in front of them. And most importantly, they may be gone, just as Jesus is gone here. But they are with him. And as we are told in those first Thessalonian verses, we will see them again. And for this reason, we do not, should not grieve like the world does. Which brings us to verse 14. Having said this, 
she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. She sees Jesus, but she doesn't see him. This is the same thing that happened on the road to Emmaus, as told to us in Luke 24. This is the same thing that we're going to be told about at the end of this gospel when the boys are back out fishing. The Bible never tells us why they don't recognize Jesus. But in all three of those instances, those people, they were either looking for a dead man or they were equating God with the Lamb of God before he became the Passover Lamb. In essence, they were looking for someone that they thought should be God and not God himself. And the religious Jews had done the same thing for three years. They looked at Jesus. And they asked him, the God incarnate, they asked him, the very radiance of the essence of the Father, they asked him, who are you? And they murdered him because he claimed to be God. Because he wasn't their God. And this is why we must ensure that the Jesus that we worship, the God that we claim that has saved us, is the God of the Bible. Because these, the religious Jews, claimed to know God. They worshiped God. They had the Old Testament. And they looked at Christ. And they didn't see him. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The question posed to Mary by Jesus is supportive of the fact that she was looking for a dead man. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And what we're told by her response is also revealing. She thought that he was the gardener and that he was the one that had taken the body away. And ironically, in one sense, he's both of those things. He is the gardener who created and cared for the first garden where man was first made in. And he is the gardener who created and cared for this garden as well. And he is the one who carried himself away. Wait, you, you may be thinking, wait a second. I thought the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that what Galatians 1.1 says? Yes, it is. Galatians 1.1 tells us that um, Paul, who is an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. But then we're told in Romans 8.11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Father, spirit. But then we have John 2.19. Jesus answered him, You destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead. God is a triune God. 
equal but distinct, the same in substance and equal in glory. And it is this God, the one that you and I will never fully be able to explain or understand. We will never really get this God. It is that God that raised the body of Christ, that carried him away, as Mary has stated. And then this God, Jesus, says her name. Mary. And the veil fell. The blinders were lifted. The truth of John 10, 3 is revealed for us. The one that says, the sheep his sheep hear his voice and he calls them by name. And John 12, 16, once again, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that he had said these things and these things had been written about him and done to him, the glorification of Christ, we have to understand, is not entirely defined by the cross. It's also defined by the resurrection. And Mary was standing between these two events at that moment. And she was focusing on the first, on the cross, and not remembering the promise of the second. This is implied by the thing that she does in verse 16. Did you catch that in verse 16? She asked a question of the gardener. And then she turned back and she looked at the empty tomb. But when she heard him call her name, she turned once again. She turned back and she looked and she really saw and she saw his glory. And then we have verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to, your fa- to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Okay, verse 17. Um, this verse is one of those verses that belongs in the top ten most difficult to understand and explain. Why, why would he tell her not to touch him? Was there something bad that would happen to her or to him if she did? And what's this thing about him not ascending to the Father? What's that supposed to mean? Was he, at this point, not fully in his resurrected body? It's like he's in a 3D state and not a 5D state. And that she would have been disappointed if she had touched him. Or, or maybe she would just get sucked into this weird dimension if she did touch him and sent to Abraham's bosom even though she wasn't dead. Is that what this is all about? The reality is, if if we examine this verse in context, with the entire section of the scripture, we can answer many, if not all, those questions. And we can actually understand this verse. First of all, let's deal with that no-touchy thing. Jesus was not like the emperor in the emperor's new groove that didn't want or like to be touched. He wasn't doing no-touchy. There was no prohibition about touching him. In fact, he's going to tell Thomas, place your hands in my side in in verse 27 of this chapter. And from the Gospel of Matthew, we know at this moment that this Mary was already touching him. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and were worshiping him. Chapter 28, verse 9. 
And it wasn't even the matter in which Mary or the other women were touching him that was at the issue either. They weren't giving him a bear hug, hugging him too tightly, giving him a hug of death. This entire verse is cleared up by the last part of it. The command to go to the disciples. Verse 10 of that Gospel of Matthew, the very next verse, after the one that says they were clinging to his feet and worshiping him, tells us this. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. His command was was not focusing on telling them, Don't touch me. He was commanding her, them, go. Just as he had commanded, she had been commanded to go when she first came to the tomb, as told in the Matthew account. And from verse 18 of our account today, we see that she obeyed. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Obeying the Lord at that moment in letting go of him, this couldn't have been easy for her. This woman was an emotional wreck. She had just gone through three days of an emotional F5 tornado. The arrest, the trial, the flogging, the crucifixion, the death of her beloved Savior, the empty tomb. Her response to the disciples when she went the first time proves this. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. And then what she said to Jesus when she first saw him, before he called her by name, gives us even more insight into this heartbreak. When she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you took him and I will go take care of him. But now she was no longer an emotional wreck. That F5 tornado has been calmed by the same man who calmed another storm with one word. When he told that other storm, peace. In Mark 36, 39. And here he calmed the storm that was raging within her with one word as well. Mary? And this is why he could tell her, don't cling to me. And this is why she could let go. Because she was no longer afraid that anyone could or would take her master away from her. It was no longer a possibility. And this is why she could obey and go. And saints, did you take note of who it was that she was sent to in both of those Gospels? Did you hear that? She was sent to the disciples. And... They did not lose their place with Christ because they had gone home, because they had fled the night that he had been arrested, because they had denied him three times. They did not lose their salvation because of their actions. They were his disciples. And yes, this is a great biblical doctrine that is a pillar of the Reformation, the assurance of the saints. But did you notice who she was sent to? Look at it. Did you notice it? Matthew 28.10. Go and tell my brothers. 
to go to Galilee. John 10, 2017, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Did you catch that? Go to my brothers. I'm ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God, to your God. Saints, if you are a saint, then you are a saint, and you will never be an ain't. You will sin. You will fall short of the glory of God. But if you have been called by God, if you have heard him say your name, if you, like Mary, in our account from today, have turned and seen him for who he is, then you are a saint, and you are his brother, and God is your father, and this is your hope. And the disciples did nothing to deserve the high honor that was given to them, not to be called disciples, but to be called his brother, to have the maker of heaven and earth, the holy one of Israel, the bright and morning star, the day spring, the word, the alpha and the omega. They did nothing to be deserved to be called his brother. But he saw them as his brother. And more than that, he made them his brother. And he did this in him, not in them, in him. And if you are his, then he has done the same thing for you. Listen to this truth as told to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We now have been justified by his blood. Much more, much more. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This verse speaks of our sins being cast as far as the east is from the west. It speaks of the sin price, death being paid in full. And then it speaks of our hope. We're saved. But saved from what? And to what? From his wrath. And then the next verse tells us to what? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Again, that word, much more. Wait, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more? Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the hope of the Christian. None of these things are. This is the life in Christ. And I want to warn you, do not neglect such a great salvation. 
and don't toy with such a great salvation. The religious Jews are a great illustration for us of people who did both of those things. They could not care less about the reality of Jesus as the Christ or their need for a Savior. They didn't see their sin against God as it really is, an affront to all creation. Even the dirt that you walk on obeys God. And for this reason, it's cleaner than you. And this is why Uzzah was struck dead when he in arrogance thought that his hand was cleaner than the ground that the ark might fall on. You are created in the image of God. And you have divorced yourself from him. You have committed treason against him. You have decided that you are God and not him. And for this reason, you stand in judgment. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, who cares? I'm living for my life now. I'm not worrying about something that might happen that no one can really tell me about. Well, listen to one who was cast into a place waiting for this judgment. And this is not a parable, by the way. This is truth. Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. It doesn't sound like us, does it? And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus and said to him, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Verses 19 through 24. And this is just a precursor to the judgment that this rich man will face because of his sin. The judgment that will be poured out on you and every human for all eternity because of our treason, which is called sin. Jesus referred to that judgment as the cup. The Bible refers to that judgment as the cup. Psalm 78, 9 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours, he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And this cup was the one that Jesus prayed to his father that he would remove at least three times. And this is the cup that caused him to drip or to, to bleed drops of blood that made his, ang his soul in anguish. And you think that you shouldn't be afraid? There's only one reason that you are not afraid. That you don't see your sin. That you, like the religious Jews, don't see the holiness of God. And that Jesus is Lord. And that reason is because you cannot. And this should terrify you. Because God hasn't given you eyes to see and ears to hear. But if you can see Jesus as Lord, if you do see your sin as just that, if you have heard his voice say your name, if you have heard him call you, then flee the coming wrath. Flee to the salvation that awaits in you. Run to him in faith. Cry out to him in belief. Repent of your sin. 
which means confess it, proclaim him as Lord, and you will be saved. You will see his glory, and you will be his brother, and God will be your father. You don't need perfect theology, because you will never fully understand God. The question is, do you see yourself a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you recognize that Jesus is that Savior? If so, run. Don't walk. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Run to Christ. Confess your sin. Repent and you will be saved. We have his word on it. Romans 10, 9. And when Jesus called Mary by name, she saw his glory. She knew him for the first time to be God, the true God, not just the God that she thought that he was. In that moment, she could know for the first time the God who was and is her Savior, the one that is the Word, who was in the beginning with God and who is God. And she left that garden, she left that tomb with a bounce in her step, a song in her heart. And for the first time, she could know the reality that David had written about, that he personally knew when he penned Psalm 139. Has the Lord called you by name? Have you heard your name being called by him? Then hope. And listen to the reality of your hope. The reality of your God. And I pray that your heart will exalt along with that of this other saint that wrote this. When David said, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. Saints, whatever you are facing, the truth that you just heard is truth. Yeah, cry out to the Lord. Recognize and even acknowledge the impossibility of the situation that you face. And then glory in the impossibility of it. Because you can't get yourself out of it. You may not even be able to do anything about it. But God is the God of the impossibility. More importantly, he is the God that loves you. Verses 7 through 16 of Psalm 139. You may be asking yourself, where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as a day, for darkness is as light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written... Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Ponder this. What can death, illness, sickness, hatred, or anything else matter in comparison to that truth? Mary skipped towards the disciples. She had to be giddy in knowing that Jesus is alive and that she and they are his brothers and that she and they are the sons of God. She had to be giddy as she walked towards them, skipped towards them. Verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 139. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, They are more than the sand. You think that you're alone? I awake, and I'm still with you. That's the positive side of this salvation that we've been given. This is one side of the coin that is our hearts now that they are his. But listen to the other side how we should think, and how we must think in the light of the reality that his thoughts are, treasure, are precious towards us. Verses 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies have taken your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Yahweh? Is this our heart to those that blaspheme God? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And yes, they are our enemies, but they are really enemies, our enemies only because they are enemies of God. And our job is to preach the gospel to them, to show Christ to them, to exalt and live in the hope that we have in Jesus to live with and alongside of them, just as our elder brother Jesus did. But we do that in hope, and they wonder at that hope. And this is why David in the psalm, at the end of it, in light of all these truths that it contains, he ended this psalm in this way. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.
Saints, Jesus is leading us in the way everlasting. He is leading us in sanctification. And he's leading us towards glorification. He is leading us home. He has gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, how would he have told you that he had done this? And since he has gone to prepare a place for you, will he not come again and take you to him? That you will be with him? John 14, 2 and 3. The tomb may have been empty. It was empty. And they thought that there was no hope. You may not see Jesus now. You may not feel him. But he has risen. He is alive. And he is in you. And you are in him. Mary and those disciples were feeling lost. They were feeling hopeless. But feelings didn't trump the reality of that risen king. You may feel lost. You may feel hopeless, but your feelings don't trump reality. This book, this word is life. And he has come to give you life and life more abundantly. Cling to this life, to this word, to this book, because it is truth, and truth has set you free. And this life, though, this life that we live as we walk on this dirt, this dirt. Our path may not be easy. Amen? But it will be good. And this truth will set you free continually as you walk with the Lord, as he leads you to everlasting, as you live in his hope. You are his, and he has made you his. And you will never face condemnation. And if he never did anything else for you ever again, that is the greatest gift that you will ever receive. Romans 8.1 And just remember this, saints. Home is only a heartbeat away. Live for home. Long for home. Yes, hope in this life, but also hope for the life to come. Because as good as the things are here, and there are plenty of good things here, they are merely shadows of home in and with Jesus. Let's pray.